Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Saul Loeb of the AFP caught one of the images that's likely to linger. His photograph shows a man in regular guy jeans and hoodie, cropped hair and a goatee, striding through one of the capital's mosaiced hallways. From a pole slung over his shoulder hangs the Confederate flag. It's bigger than he is. The portraits hanging in the background make eerie witnesses to this desecration. On the left is Vice President John C. Calhoun, a staunch supporter of slavery and one of the architects of the South's secession. The House voted to remove the picture last July. To the right is Charles Sumner, leader of the Radical Republicans, the most vocal anti-slavery force during the Civil War. He tried to have memorials to old racists removed from the Capitol as far back as 1865. But he's more famous as the victim of, until this week, the most notorious act of violence perpetrated in the Senate. In 1856, the Democrat Preston Brooks nearly beat Sumner to death for his abolitionist views. Blows from Preston's gold-headed walking stick left him blinded and unconscious. Sumner had tried to escape by cowering under his desk. This week, congressmen crouched on the floor with gas masks. Others peered over their seats to film the mayhem on their phones. In 1856, the senators brandished pistols to try and stop the attack. But even during the Civil War, the Confederate flag never actually made it inside the Capitol. This is Checks and Balance. I'm John Prado, The Economist's US editor. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, can Republicans recommit their party to democracy? President Trump stood on the Capitol steps at his inauguration and promised to stop this American carnage. Four years later, a violent mob stormed the Capitol building in an attempt to overturn his election defeat. The scenes shook America and its place in the world. The question now is whether this jarring spectacle makes breaking with Trump easier for Republicans. Four years ago, Republicans controlled the White House and both chambers of Congress. They've now lost all three. That hasn't happened since 1892. Will the Republican Party finally break with Trump? With me, as ever, to discuss all of this are Charlotte Howard, The Economist's New York bureau chief, and John Fasman, the US digital editor, also in New York. John, Charlotte, normally we begin this podcast with me asking you guys how you're doing and are swapping some homeschooling tips, but that doesn't really feel appropriate this time around. Five people killed at the US Capitol, including one police officer, a dozen police officers injured, 
you know, a spectacle of the kind that I don't think any of us thought or at least hoped we'd ever see at the US Capitol, which is a building where all three of us have spent quite a bit of time as reporters. Charlotte, what have you made of it? It was a remarkable day. I have to say I was surprised that the protesters were able to breach the Capitol, but I wasn't surprised at all that they tried. It's like having one say, uh, I'm a ticking time bomb, and then behaving like a ticking time bomb, and then you put the bomb where it can do maximum damage and feign surprise when it goes off. It just wasn't, I wasn't that surprised, but it was still an absolutely historic day. I think that's a good way to put it. Like a lot of things in the Trump presidency, it was it was shocking, but not surprising. One of the things we've been trying to work out this week is what the political consequences of the mob invading the Capitol are going to be. James Astill is The Economist's Washington, D.C. bureau chief, and he's been reporting and writing a piece on whether the Republican Party will be able to shake off Trump and Trumpism once the president leaves office in two weeks' time. Before James moved to Washington to start writing about America, he covered political mob violence in the Congo, Indonesia, Afghanistan, among other places. So when I spoke to him, I began by asking whether he saw the same parallels that others have seen this week with much less stable democracies. Well, I think the the comparison is, is plainly apt. There was a moment when the barricades broke and that MAGA crowd surged into the Capitol building when the guardrails just melted away from American democracy because of the desperation of the crowd, because of the symbolic importance of what they were attacking, not just a congressional process, but the symbol of American democracy at its most acute moment, the passage of one administration to another, the legitimizing of a democratic election. And at the same time, the fact that the president was urging the mob on, that really is banana republic territory. In terms of challenges to American democracy that we've seen in the past week, was the mob attacking the Capitol worse? Or was the spectacle of a large number, a majority of House Republicans and a good number of senators voting to overturn the result of the presidential election worse? I think they're absolutely as bad as each other. The challenge of that majority of Republican House members, of that small minority of Republican Senate members to the election results, even before the the mob gathered and charged, was equally shocking. And of course, they were linked. The cynical Republican lawmakers were responding to the deluded Republican electorate, of which that thuggish MAGA crowd was the the very graphic illustration. So James, now we have two weeks left of Donald Trump's presidency. You've been reporting and writing a long piece about what happens to the Republican Party when he leaves office. And that's one of the biggest questions in American politics now. How did you go about trying to answer it? So I started in, in the corridors of the Capitol. I spoke to a great number of Republican senators but I also spoke to Republicans closer to the grassroots, um, in particular the, the, the chairman of the biggest Republican county organization in Wisconsin, to get some sense of whether the Republican establishment, which is basically in its private moment, deeply opposed to Donald Trump, feels that it can get its party back. And even before 
this explosion of grassroots rage, it was clear that the Republican establishment is extremely pessimistic about its chancing of wresting the party from Donald Trump. The MAGA crowd is, is just the most extreme version of what has happened to the Republican electorate across the board. It's a new Republican base. It's literally a new Republican base in that there's been quite a lot of churn in the electorate. The members of that large Republican county association in Wisconsin have been flushed through with new working class voters who are bonded to President Trump. They are Trump supporters before they're Republicans. This is a base that is not going to turn away from President Trump just because he lost a fairly narrow election, which of course he claims to have won and a majority of them seem to have accepted that in the old fashioned way that political leaders in America generally lose power. I think there's a great deal of pessimism. There was a great deal of pessimism even before the events on Capitol Hill that that's about to happen to the Republican Party this time around. John, we'll get on to talking about what all this means for the future of the Republican Party once Donald Trump leaves office in a minute. But before we do that, I just want to go into a bit more detail on what happened at the Capitol and the meaning of it. Can you decode some of the symbols that we saw in the crowd? There were Confederate flags, as I mentioned in the introduction. There were some QAnon signs. There were lots of chants about taking our country back. There were people wearing animal skins with Viking helmets. What did you make of the symbols that this rabble chose to fasten onto? I mean, some of the symbols were quite telling, weren't they? There was one man who was photographed wearing a Camp Auschwitz sweatshirt. There was another guy on the steps who was wearing a T-shirt that said uh, 6MWE, which means 6 million were not enough. So these are supporters of an American president wearing pro-Nazi, gruesome pro-Nazi memorabilia. Um, that was what stood out for me. Other than that, you saw a lot of symbols that had been used before, right? I think if there weren't any Gadsden flags, there was a pre-Gadsden flag, a join or die flag from the colonial era. And it put me in mind, I remember when I was covering the the, the then nascent Tea Party in 2010, there were a lot of people who would show up in sort of capes and tricornered hats. It was a conscious effort to evoke America's 18th century heritage. I saw much less of that this time. This time it seemed far more far more obstreperous and militant in design. One thing that was really interesting about Wednesday's events was that you saw an angry mob, of course, storm the Capitol. And then you also saw a parade of speeches that was interrupted in the afternoon and then continued on Wednesday evening from Democrats and Republicans alike. And you saw Josh Hawley, who was the first to talk about uh, rejecting certain electors, you saw Josh Hawley try to make a distinction between what's appropriate and what's inappropriate. So he talked about how breaking through the Capitol is obviously not the way to protest an election's outcome. But then he insisted that his approach to voice his objection was the lawful and correct thing to do. This, of course, doesn't have that much credibility for a man who on going into the Capitol, raised a fist in solidarity as he passed the mob. But also, I think it's a mistake to say that the mob was more dangerous than some of the actions of Senator Hawley and his colleagues. Yes, they were physically more dangerous, but I'm not sure that you can say that Senator Hawley's actions were less damaging to American democracy. 
Yeah, I'd agree with that. There's been this debate among journalists about whether to call what happened an attempted coup or not, which I think is not a terribly interesting debate for us to get into here. I was more alarmed in some ways by the fact that so many members of the Republican Party were willing to vote in Congress against certifying these election results. I mean, that seems really, really troubling to me. There's been this long debate about whether people should take what Donald Trump says literally or not. And I think the point is there are enough people who do take what he says perfectly literally to make what he says really dangerous. And that faction of the Republican Party that thought that it was fine to go along with him, go along with this performance of voting against the election results, you know, they were really playing with fire. Thank you both. We'll get some perspective on all this from a leading historian of the Republican Party in just a moment. But first, a reminder, if you're not an Economist subscriber yet, then you really ought to be. Otherwise, you're missing out. You'll find the best offer at economist.com slash uspod. As well as James's detailed coverage of the week's political tumult in America, there's a big briefing on the global COVID-19 vaccine rollout and the usual sparkling budget column on the politics of patience. Economist.com slash uspod is the link to subscribe. It's in the notes for this episode. This is the moment in the podcast where we normally take a bit of a historical digression. We're doing it slightly differently this week. We are. This week, I talked to Rick Perlstein, who is the author of, among other things, The Coming Storm, Nixon Land, and Reagan Land, which look at the formation of the modern American right. We spent a lot of time talking about how deep the minoritarian roots of the Republican Party really are. A lot of the way I describe the course of that history I write about is that really it's the nationalization of a style of politics which was deeply rooted in the American South since the founding of the nation. The only way the Constitution succeeded in creating a literal United States was by creating this institution of the Senate, right, which was inherently non-democratic. It was elected by state legislatures. And of course, each state, no matter their population, got two members. And the Electoral College, which each state gets the number of votes of senators they have plus congressmen. And then, of course, most malevolently, the the three-fifths clause in which for how many Congress members a state would get, each slave, each enslaved person was counted as three-fifths of a person. It's literally minoritarian at the level of the human soul. Let our republicanism so focused and so dedicated not be made fuzzy and futile by unthinking and stupid labels. It's only after we have this remarkable convergence where the the Republican Party nominates an anti-civil rights candidate in 1964, Barry Goldwater, that we begin to see the Republican Party inherit this kind of southernization of politics. I would remind you that extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice. There was a really striking moment at the 1964 convention. Barry Goldwater becomes a minoritarian candidate of a kind of pro-Southern faction. And when he wins the nomination, a uh, Goldwater delegate from Texas says, we just shoved the Mason-Dixon line clear up to Canada. And let me remind you also that moderation in the pursuit of justice is no virtue. 
then you get into the business of voter suppression. Once the loss cause myth of the 1960s instead of the 1860s kind of comes into place, which is this idea that the Democrats stole the election in these black cities like Chicago. Sorry to keep you waiting. Complicated business. Complicated. The striking thing about Trump's election in 2016 was he proved that the modern Republican Party could do what the Democratic Party did in the 19th century, which was win and keep power as a minority coalition. It didn't need 50% plus one of the votes. Seven out of the last state presidential elections, the Democratic Party got more votes than the Republican Party, but only got two presidents out of that deal. And that's because of these minoritarian things that are built into our system since the 1780s. I've just received a call from Secretary Clinton. She congratulated us, it's about us, on our victory. They were able to prove that you could squeeze out a victory exploiting the Electoral College, creating a conspiratorial mentality that Democrats and liberals are evil and must be destroyed by any means. And what gets this mob of people determined to kind of force their way into the Capitol and impose their will on the majority of Americans is this idea that they are the true Americans, even if they don't have a majority coalition. For those who have chosen not to support me in the past, of which there were a few people, I'm reaching out to you for your guidance and your help so that we can work together and unify our great country. If there is, in fact, a Republican Party schism over Trumpism, what do the rise of Nixon and Reagan tell us about how that schism plays out? When a Republican president fails spectacularly, in the case of Nixon through Watergate, or in the case of Bush, the Iraq war and Katrina and the collapse of the economy, he will just be kind of disappeared down the memory hole. To a few of us here today, this is a solemn and most momentous occasion. And yet in the history of our nation, it is a commonplace occurrence. And in the case of Richard Nixon, Reagan came along and said, that's not us. The orderly transfer of authority as called for in the Constitution routinely takes place as it has for almost two centuries. In 1981, he did his inauguration on the west front of the Capitol for the first time instead of the east front because this is the first president who kind of faces from the West, as if Nixon, who was also from California, had never existed. Few of us stop to think how unique we really are. In the eyes of many in the world, this every four-year ceremony we accept as normal is nothing less than a miracle. Trump, I predict, will kind of be disappeared by the Republican establishment and the people who kind of remain loyal to Trump. I think that the establishment of the Republican Party kind of hopes that they can kind of isolate them as this permanent minority fringe, which will be a tricky business. Charlotte, in the past week, it's become even clearer what the costs both politically and morally, of the Republican Party's pact with Donald Trump has been. I mean, the party's lost its majority in the Senate because of the Georgia election results and now finds that it essentially owns the violence at the Capitol. 
Rick Perlstein there was suggesting that the party establishment would succeed in disappearing Donald Trump. Do you agree with that? I am not sure that I do. I don't think there's a clear answer to that. We're all just guessing at this point. But I think there are a few reasons to doubt that Republicans will be able to extricate themselves so easily. Um, As I see it, there are sort of three options for Republicans. One is to remain tied to Trump himself. The second option is this question of whether you can adopt Trump's rhetoric, his populist themes, some of the um, work that he's done to question American institutions, you know, anti-trade, the whole the whole business, but distance from the man himself. And then the third option is whether you can fully extricate yourself, pretend to have amnesia, do the Reagan trick, move on, try to embrace the principles that you supposedly held dear prior to the Trump administration, you know, combine that with deregulation and low taxes or whatever, and then become a bit more of a traditional Republican party. I think there's clearly one right answer um, for Republicans, which would be the third option of a full extrication and trying to to adhere to some principles. But I think each of them, each path is pretty politically treacherous. Um, it, it's not clear to me that the Republican Party is ready to move on. Liz Cheney talks about how, you know, this is not who we are. It turns out, you know, it kind of is. Uh, YouGov's polling for The Economist shows that 64% of Republican voters think Biden's victory should be blocked by Congress and that 45% of Republicans approve of the storming of the Capitol. So I, it's not clear to me that the Republican Party is ready. John, what about you? Do you think the Republican Party will be able to move beyond Trump and put Trumpism behind it once he leaves office? I mean, do you think the party even wants to? You, you look at his approval rating among Republican voters and it's up there at 90%. We'll see if it moves a bit in response to what happened at the Capitol. But I think the safest assumption is that at least in the near term, Donald Trump remains by far the most popular figure in the Republican Party. I think that's true. And the irony, the shameful irony, is that his staunchest supporters in Congress, Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz, they're the ones who want him gone the most, right? They don't want Trump to nurture this fantasy for four years that the election was stolen from him and have him come back as the nominee in 2024. They want to be the nominee. And so I think what they're banking on is that some combination of, you know, sloth and legal and financial troubles will sort of render Trump politically inoperative and they can just position themselves as the leader of his base and inherit it without ever having to do the work of standing up and opposing him and sort of rearticulating what the Republican Party is for. They want to just slide into the top position, but they're the ones who really want him gone more than anybody else. Yeah, I think that's so interesting. And I think it highlights this long-running debate about principle versus political pragmatism within the Republican Party, because the story of Republicans in the Trump era has been one of politics over principle, the continued subjugation of ideals, of policies because it's politically expedient to support the president. And there's this been this question of where do you draw the line? Where do things go too far? And you say, you know, enough is enough. And no one better exemplifies that than Lindsey Graham, who on Wednesday night did say enough is enough. This is a guy who, you know, if we question what he actually thinks in May 2016, as everyone knows, 
at this point, he said, you know, if we nominate Trump, we'll get destroyed and we'll deserve it. Then he went on, of course, to support the president. Last month, he was pressuring the Georgia Secretary of State uh, to commit fraud in, in in his recounting of of votes after the November election. He told Fox that he was prepared to donate 500000 to Trump's legal efforts to overturn the election. And then on Wednesday night, he finally says that Joe Biden was lawfully elected in this weird kind of affable, slurring speech. Um, and does he really get to separate himself now, now that not only has his guy lost the presidency, but politicians who yoked themselves to Trump, um, Purdue and Leffler in Georgia, that they also lost? He seemed to have finally discovered his principles when it was politically pragmatic to do so. And so I think, you know, it was a perfect capstone to the Lindsey Graham Trump era. And the question is, for the rest of the Republican Party, what do they decide is the politically pragmatic thing to do? I, I don't think this is a party that can credibly claim to have principles. So how do they make that assessment for the Josh Hawley's or the Ted Cruz's with presidential ambitions? You know, how do they politically manage this this period? I think it's really, really tricky for them. It's going to be really interesting to watch the next few high-profile Republican primaries, because I think as you, Charlotte and John, you both say, these senators who are hoping that they might be able to inherit Donald Trump supporters in 2024 or in some future primary, they're all operating under the assumption that Donald Trump has this incredibly strong hold, unbreakable hold over Republican primary voters. And that is one reason, I think, why so many prominent Republicans have been, frankly, cowardly during the past four years. I mean, James Astle, when he was doing his reporting on Capitol Hill for the piece that's in this week's edition, found that all the Republican senators he talked to assumed that Donald Trump would be the nominee in 2024 if he wanted to be. Now, they may be right. It may be that Donald Trump continues to exercise this hold over Republican primary voters, even when he's out of office, even in defeat. Or it's possible, as James suggests in, in the piece he's written, that they're suffering from a version of Stockholm syndrome, and they're overestimating this hold that Donald Trump seems to have over the Republican base. And we'll only really know that when it's tested, when that power is tested in Republican primaries. So I think it's a bit too early to tell at the moment. I think it is too. I think you can sort of start to see the different wings of the party shaping up, right? You've got Hawley and Cruz who are running to be the sort of leaders of the Trumpist base. On the opposite side of the spectrum, you've got anti-Trump Republicans like Larry Hogan, who I would imagine makes a run for president. I like him a lot. I think he's been a good governor. He's got no shot. And then you've got Ben Sass, who's sort of trying to split the difference in the sense that he supported Trump. He supports conservative principles. He's trying to quietly sort of slowly distance himself from Trump without going too far over into the into the never Trumpers. And then you've got people who have been on the shelf, the Paul Ryans, and the Nikki Haley's where candidates like that put themselves is going to say a lot about where the party goes. I think, though, what Republicans want is to get through this period to move Trump off stage without ever doing the necessary work of confronting Trumpism. And that, I mean, there's a reason I wrote about Reconstruction in the Christmas issue, right? That's sort of what we did after the Civil War. We decided that unity was more important than anything else. We didn't punish the people who had who had waged war on America, and we just sort of moved on. And I think that's what Republicans want to do this time. That Reconstruction episode was so well-timed, actually, it seemed. I was going back and 
thinking about the 14th Amendment, which we discussed during that episode as being one of the more important outcomes of Reconstruction. And the Section 3 seems relevant, which is basically about barring from public office, be it from Congress or the, from the presidency, anyone who um, tries to help overturn the government or gives comfort or aid to those who do. Anyway, I think it's 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 sort of alarmingly apt, our, the discussion of Reconstruction and, and what happened after these days. Yeah, if anyone wants to go back and listen to that podcast or to re-listen to it, then just look in the timeline. It's two episodes ago. All right, thank you both. We'll be back in a little bit to remind ourselves what happened in the other momentous political story this week, the Georgia Senate runoffs. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Well, before the Capitol came under attack from people wearing Make America Great Again baseball hats, Georgia picked two new senators. Two Democratic candidates, Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff, defeated the two Republicans, Kelly Loeffler and David Perdue, in what I think anyway was a surprise result. Idris Kaloun has been in Atlanta reporting on those elections. I asked him whether Donald Trump's allegations of election fraud might have scuppered the Republican candidates' chances. The Trump effect is going to be the one that's really hard to decipher. In the county that he actually held his election night rally at, you see a much lower turnout than in other parts of the state, which is kind of interesting. If your message is there was terrible fraud in this election seven weeks ago, and by the way, your governor, who's a Republican, is crazy, and your secretary of state, who's a Republican, is part of this conspiracy, then you know it can be a little bit tough to imagine why I need to turn out. But ultimately, when the race is this close, you can point to basically every single factor and suggest that it's decisive. And you might have a case, right? Another point you made in the piece that you wrote was that the Republican argument in this election got quite confused in another dimension. You know, On the one hand, Georgia Republicans were meant to vote to prevent socialism. On the other hand, Donald Trump was supposedly the rightful president who'd really won in November. It's really hard to run both of those messages together. Let's talk a bit about Kelly Loeffler, because I find her such a fascinating figure. I mean, her career, which went from fairly standard issue business Republican appointed by Georgia's governor to fill a Senate seat, to full-on Trumpist, to, it seems, at least in the past 24 hours, back to something a bit more sane her career is a really is a sort of the Republican Party and the Trump era in miniature and a, and a sort of morality play all on its own. Yeah. And it also only took place in the span of a year. So in 2019, Johnny Isaacson, who was the Republican incumbent, uh, gave up the Senate seat because of health reasons. And Brian Kemp, who is the Republican governor of Georgia, who also probably owes his political fortunes to Trump, 
had to pick his interim replacement, and then there would be a, gen- a special election, which we just had now. Kemp went against the president's wishes, and I think annoyed him by picking Leffler. And the idea there was that you would pick, like you said, someone who's a businesswoman, moderate-ish, someone who might appeal to the uh, women in the Georgia suburbs who were increasingly rebelling against Trump. And Leffler, who gave no indication of being especially Trumpy before she got the Senate seat. Suddenly, her ads say, Kelly Leffler, 100% Trump voting record. That's it. There's no personality beyond that. It's just 100% Trump. If you look at her on the campaign field, you know, she was saying that uh, her opponent was a radical socialist and she was the only one who could, who could stop him, all that kind of stuff. And in the waning days before the election, the runoff was actually held, which she ultimately lost to Raphael Warnock. She decided that she would join the group of 12 Republicans uh, in the Senate who were going to object to all the states that Trump narrowly lost. You know, that was her her pitch. And on election night in Atlanta, when it was becoming clear that, you know, things were not going as expected, she gave a brief speech in which she said, I'm going to be going to Washington tomorrow and I'm going to fight for you, meaning Trump, to overturn the election. So she goes to Washington that day. We know what happens. Um, The Capitol gets stormed. Uh, After the Senate reconvenes, she says that she can no longer make her objections, which is admirable in the sense that you've at least relented at this point. But if you truly believe that there was masses of fraud being committed in Georgia, in your own home state, you know, she called for the secretary of state of her own party to resign, the guy who resisted Trump's overtures to find 12,000 votes. If you truly believe that that was what happened, I don't think that storming the Capitol actually changes the facts on the ground. Um, of course, if this was all just a political stunt to gain um, some measure of support of Trump voters who you think you can't alienate, then this all makes sense. Charlotte, this is a really consequential election or or pair of elections because it flips control of the Senate, albeit by the narrowest possible margin. Both parties will have 50 senators, which leaves Vice President Kamala Harris acting as the tiebreaker. When we talked about the Georgia election before Christmas, you were somewhat down on the chances of John Ossoff, suggesting that because he'd read The Economist at high school, he might not have the most glittering political career ahead of him. Is that a thought you'd like to reconsider? (laughs) Yes, it's definitely a sign that anyone can become a U.S. senator as long as they read The Economist. Um, You, too, could become a senator if you go to economist.com slash U.S. pod and click the link to subscribe. I think that John Ossoff, you know, it was a really interesting case study in whether the decision to yoke yourself even closer to Trump, um, even after he lost, would be a good one rather than talk about a broader message of what Republicans could do for the American people or the importance of Republicans maintaining Senate control. And, you know, it wasn't successful. So I think that is a really important message for Republicans going forward. John, we'll get back to the Republicans in a minute. But before we do that, I wanted to ask you briefly about Raphael Warnock, because you know Atlanta so well, and you know the church where he preaches so well, and I gather he's going to carry on preaching there even after he becomes a U.S. senator. Tell us a little bit about Raphael Warnock's church and its importance in Georgia and also in Atlanta city life. He is the youngest senior pastor ever at Ebenezer Baptist Church, and that is the church where 
Martin Luther King Jr. and Sr. both preach. It's certainly the best known church in Atlanta. It's central to the to the civil rights movement in America. It anchors a neighborhood known as Sweet Auburn, which is where Dr. King and the other Dr. King, Dr. King Jr. and Sr. both lived and grew up. Um, it is no surprise to me that he inspired such outsized African-American turnout across Georgia, that he has given his position. I think another thing that may have inspired that sizable turnout are David Perdue and Kelly Leffler's attacks on him. They said the same thing about him that people like them said about Martin Luther King 70 years ago, right? That he's a Marxist, it's a thinly coated racial attack, and it didn't work. He's the first elected African-American Democrat from the Deep South. I think credit for his victory also belongs to Stacey Abrams. She has a sort of cultic following among progressive Atlantans, but she has done great work in registering and mobilizing voters that hadn't been mobilized and registered before. I would not be surprised to see a model of her organization crop up in Mississippi, Louisiana, Alabama, all of which are heavily African-American but have low African-American turnout. And those states could potentially change in much the same way that Georgia had over time. Charlotte, as we already mentioned, this election result means that Democrats have this incredibly narrow majority in the Senate. But it is a majority, nevertheless. What do you think Democrats might be able to do with it? Well, there are big short-term and long-term problems, obviously, facing the country. Um, In the short term, there's the reality that there are still... 10.7 million unemployed people, which is about twice the number that there were in February. And that doesn't count the additional 7 million people who have essentially stopped looking for work. And Congress has not given much recent assistance. And so I think there's a question of whether Democrats might be able to pull together for a bigger package of aid, both for individuals as well as all the small businesses that are suffering. Here in New York, where I am, you know, you really see restaurants trying to hang on, but there are small businesses around the country that are that are struggling a lot. Um, there's a question of the continued problem of rolling out the vaccine. Then there are the longer-term challenges, which Joe Biden ran on, including a really ambitious agenda for trying to deal with climate change thinking about how to to get the economy going quickly again in a way that benefits uh, people across different levels of income. So there's some really big problems and big opportunities for Democrats now that they control both houses of Congress. And we'll see what strategy Republicans use to counter them. Are they going to be obstructionist as they were in the Obama years? That is not to say that they should never oppose what Democrats want to do. This country functions best with two parties, and the two parties have basic differences on principle and policy, or at least they they should. Um, But it is to say, will they dedicate themselves solely to obstruction? Will this be Mitch McConnell's sort of last act as a man in power? We are ending the McConnell era where he controlled the Senate. He's going to be the minority leader. Is he going to exercise the same level of control and unrestrained opposition that he did during the Obama years? I think Joe Biden thinks that won't happen. He thinks he has a way to talk to Republicans that will induce them to cooperate. A lot of people think that's naive. I'm not sure. We'll see. It, it, it depends on where Republicans believe their incentives lie. I do want to emphasize, just again, the deep shame of Wednesday for the Republican Party, both that they lost Georgia, which has been a reliably Republican state for so long, and then the events in the Capitol for which I would argue they are very much responsible. 
Mitch McConnell spoke stridently against those who did not want to to certify the election. Um, But he, of course, has been very much a partner to Donald Trump throughout his presidency. Um, Mike Pence got accolades from some more establishment conservatives for putting his foot down and not acquiescing with the president, uh, the president's request to do the brave thing and the right thing. I thought that the letter that Mike Pence wrote, which was supposedly an acknowledgement of his constitutional responsibilities, was a deeply shameful letter. It also said, you know, quote, that there were numerous instances of officials setting aside state election law and, quote, significant allegations of voting irregularities. If you continue to perpetuate these baseless claims, you fuel it. I mean, the letter from Ted Cruz and the other senators earlier, which basically said, because there are such significant allegations of election fraud, we need to have an emergency investigation in key swing states. You know, where are these allegations of election fraud coming from? It's just, it was an extraordinarily, extraordinarily shameful period in Republicans' history. And the question is, how long are voters' collective memories? Um, You know, the, the earlier question that you posed about Reagan saying, let's move beyond this. Reagan was an outsider. He had not been part of the Nixon administration. And I just wonder whether these Republicans who have been part, very much part of the Trump era, whether they can remain or whether you need some new characters to help bring the party forward. Well, that's going to be one of the big themes of our political coverage over the next couple of years. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you, John. Before I let you go, it has been an extraordinary week in American politics, but we've still found time to come up with a quiz. The Republicans' loss of those two seats in the Senate this week means that Mitch McConnell's reign as the hugely powerful Senate majority leader is over. McConnell first came to the attention of The Economist in 1984. A young attorney, he was elected junior senator for Kentucky amid the Reagan landslide. Only one president was born in Kentucky. Which one? Lincoln. I don't know, but that sounds that sounds like a good answer. I'll defer to Fasman. Follow Fasman is always a good principle in these quizzes. <laughs> it was Abraham Lincoln. McConnell is the same age as Joe Biden, and his political career stretches back even further. He interned for Kentucky Senator John Sherman Cooper in the early 60s. Where was he during the 1963 March on Washington when Martin Luther King gave his famous I Have a Dream speech? I bet he was like eating a sandwich somewhere by himself. Exactly. There's they have like a million slanderous answers. <laughs> it's never been so hard to not. I talk. think it was like a really kind of slimy ham and cheese sandwich, to be specific. Like a little old on white bread. He might cut off his crusts. I love that answer. <laughs> Apparently he was there. He wanted to observe the I Have a Dream speech as a student. He was marching on Washington? The scales have fallen from my eyes. Yeah. Wow. Hmm. Although known these days for his staunch support for Donald Trump's agenda and implacable opposition to Obama's, one of the quirks of McConnell's legacy is breaking with his party on issues of civil rights. He sided with Democrats and against Reagan in voting for sanctions on apartheid-era South Africa and has backed the removal of Confederate monuments. If this episode leads to some kind of transformation of Mitch McConnell away from cynical obstruction toward cooperation, I'll pay you, I don't know, hundreds of dollars, but it would be worth it. 
If you can survive in American politics for long enough, eventually you become a national treasure. <laughs> I take the I take the reverse. The people who stick around for a really long time are those who never stand up for their own ideas, and they just adapt with the winds until they become a shapeless, spineless ball of flesh. Um, I'm not saying that that refers to anyone, any politician specifically, but I think exactly. that's the and only with that, mode of survival. Exactly, and with that, here comes the Biden era. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Charlotte. Thank you, John. Thank you. Thanks, John. Thank you all for the really lovely reviews you've been leaving us over the holiday period. They do mean a lot, and they really help spread the word about the podcast. You can get in touch with us via email. As ever, the address is radio at economist.com. There's plenty more coverage of the crisis in America on Economist Radio. The Economist Asks speaks to the historian Margaret McMillan this week, and the intelligence tracks developments daily. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe, stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.